brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, achy joints, weight gain. Maybe you're thinking they're all just part of getting older, or that's what your doctor tells you. But Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all be connected. Hormonal changes that happen during perimenopause and menopause are at the root of dozens of symptoms women experience, not just hot flashes. Midi specializes in compassionate care for women in menopause. Their solutions are safe, effective, and FDA-approved. Plus, they're covered by insurance. A convenient telehealth visit with a MIDI clinician can be your first step to getting personalized care. They'll tailor a treatment plan for your symptoms and health history, so you can get back to feeling great. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. When your body changes, your care should too. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. You're listening to Releasing Trauma, a survivor's podcast. And now here's your host, Tracy Osborne. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the show. Today, we are going to be talking about um, lessons on self-mastery going from music to life. And my guest today is Kenny Warner. He is a internationally renowned American jazz pianist and a Grammy nominee. And we're going to be talking a little bit about his book and his story and how he was able to overcome uh, some of the traumas in his life. So Kenny, welcome to the show. Thank you, Tracy. Well, I'm excited to have you here. Um, Let's start with um, your traumas and the fact that, you know, you had to deal with um, losing your daughter and surviving a car accident and, and some of that. So, you know, tell us a little bit about about your story. Well, um, you know, it's 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 funny because obviously the definition of trauma has really uh, widened over the years. Now there's trauma with a large T and trauma with a small T. Mm-hmm. I think growing up uh, as a little kid, my first trauma was trauma with a small T, uh, that of uh, being the early 1950s and after World War II and with the emergence of television, uh, a few factors had me um, quietly traumatized, uh, sitting in front of the television a lot because it seemed to solve a problem for parents and having brothers that were way older than me. So um, it was almost like being an only child, except like having brothers, but they don't have any use for you. You know, you only see them walking out the door and you're sitting and watching a lot of TV and nobody knew yet the harm that that did to the brain. And uh, I think I've been battling that all my life. Loneliness, um, not using the television to numb out uh, being present, uh, and I've wasted a lot of time and a mind that could cause trauma by projecting into the future. You know, these are traumas with a small T. In other words, you could be uh, just sitting in your house and going like, well, wow, what's this era of pandemic, what we're all going through and what I'm going through and am I going to have a job and will, uh, you know, will you know, all that stuff. You're sitting in this moment. And you're becoming traumatized by thinking about the future. Uh, I think this was very common, is very common. And people drown it out today with uh, 
social media, and I, I would drown it out by television. All my unanswered questions, I was a pianist. I was a working pianist at a very young age, but I never wanted to practice because I never wanted to get off the couch. And when I thought about getting off the couch, I had a different voice talking to me, saying, get off this couch, go practice before dad wakes up. He, he would work at night, so he'd wake up in the daytime because he's going to go, did Kenny practice? You know, at least that's the way I heard it. And, you know, and uh, I had ADHD and I had very bad Tourette's, so bad but they didn't have the word yet, but I would start making noises or um, body movements and uh, they would send me home. They wouldn't know what to do. Uh, and between that and being unable to pay attention and unable to do homework, I had the daily trauma of going to school unprepared for 12 years. So I woke up in fear every day. My parents were from an old generation where neither of them finished high school. And I, don't, I thought when they heard me play piano, this is a different kind of trauma. When they heard me play piano, everybody thought, well, he'll be okay. We'll see him in Carnegie Hall or whatever. It doesn't matter that he didn't do his homework. It doesn't matter that you can't read his writing or left-handed, you know. It doesn't matter all the other things that I had not learned to be and felt lesser than everyone else. But I looked like more than everyone else because if I played the piano, it was like holding a shiny object in front of everybody. And they were just blown away and, and nobody even thought, well, does he get enough exercise or does he do his homework or you know, can, can he survive in Spanish class or whatever? So I basically grew up in a small T trauma and I've spent the rest of my life trying to undo it. Now, against that backdrop, music came to me in the ultimate level of health, meaning I would just play it. I wouldn't worry about it. I would think I can do it. I would not think of myself as inadequate. All my superior feelings were if I just touched a piano. So it is all, all about neural passageways, really. In mm -hmm. one neural passageway, two people can touch a piano. One can feel like they're uh, dipping their hands in warm water after making snowballs outside, right? And the other one can feel like they're touching a hot stove. And that's trauma. There's a lot of induced trauma for musicians as to whether they're going to play well or not. And other ones, it's not the uh, crowning issue in their life. Then later in life, I had uh, the big T traumas. Uh, my daughter uh, died in a car accident. She'd only been driving, oh, maybe six months. And it was we were only letting her drive locally. But that happened. And, um, you know, it's funny when you spend most of your life worrying about things that never happen, you know, but instead of living your life, you worry about things that never happen. Uh, that's what I call very common small T trauma stuff. Then when something really does happen, you almost feel uh, vindicated. Mm -hmm. Like, actually, there is something seriously wrong and you should feel that way now. And that thought made me strangely calm because I was used to uh, getting traumatic inside, not, not, not being a pain to everybody else, but well, probably somewhat of a pain to everyone else, but, but nothing like what was going on inside. And suddenly the, uh, the, the reality matched the feeling. Uh, so that just, uh, that just got me to go to work in music. I, I, I wanted to be able to express it. And I think I got more dedicated for composing something 
which is what I had won a Guggenheim for, a thing called No Beginning, No End. Uh, and I immersed myself in it. And I was uh, when I wasn't in mourning, I'd be really involved in music focused like I had never been focused before, or probably or since. The trauma that is ascribed in the book, because I didn't talk about that in the book, is I was finishing the book. Uh, I started the book in November. The book is called Becoming the Instrument. And I felt like a, I have a whole method of getting your mind out of the way and connecting your body to the instrument. And now it evolved into I am the instrument. I'm the instrument that plays the instrument. That's how healthy and wise my relationship with music is. But I can tell you that knowledge that you may possess in one area of life will not necessarily work in other areas where you have trauma. So in other words, I couldn't make decisions in my life like I made decisions in music because there was, to me, there was so much more to be, to be holding on to, to be afraid of. Whereas in music, I was really one of the few people that knew that there's nothing to be afraid of. It's only music. So, but this trauma, as I was just about to, just to finish the answer to your question, um, I started the book in, in November of 2015. And in January of 2016, I was almost done with it because I had really gathered a lot of new material and it was almost writing itself. Uh, I had all the chapters, everything. But then I went to India. I have a, a teacher a guru, and I don't normally talk about, you know, uh, publicly because it doesn't really matter. There's a lot of wisdom out there. And so I went to the ashram in India. And for three weeks, I really wanted to crack the wall between my knowledge of liberation in music and my knowledge, but no experience of liberation in my life. I said, I'm going there and I'm going to throw myself in the pool and see if I can find the same easy freedom that I have if I touch even touch a piano. Uh, and it took a while of freaking out, you know, because suddenly I don't have all my uh, uh, security blankets around and I'm just another devotee walking around this ashram in India. But after six or seven days, I found that the ego dropped its defenses somehow. I was listening to these, these uh, Brahmin priests chant for a certain uh, celebration that day. I found that I went out like to the space I go to when I play. And when they were done, I had been sitting there an hour. And instead of counting every minute of the hour I was sitting there, an hour had flown by. And when I got up, I was almost banging into walls. I was just so intoxicated. I said, this is what I was looking for. I get this when I play. So I came home ready to actually top off the book with, you know, the 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 subtype, the sub subject of the book is the integration of my knowledge and music to using it in my life, to being able to treat my life the way I treat the instrument. Um, and I thought I had just gotten the final chapter. Wow. You know, now, now I am the instrument. I'm not just trying, you know, in life, I'm not just trying to make things go well, whatever happens, you know, a tree lives through everything. I live through everything. But a week later I had a car accident and I wasn't minding the, uh, the time difference. And I was coming back from New York too late and I just fell asleep and mm. it was a bad accident, but I walked away. I felt very protected. I was just bleeding in my head, but I felt very protected. But a week later I started waking up with anxiety every day 
that I have never experienced. I mean, I think I've experienced it here and there, but not like on a daily basis. And I was told that sometimes uh, uh, certain accidents, uh, a trauma can emerge from the accident, even if you don't even, if you don't feel like that, that they're connected. And then I went through that for about six, seven, eight months where I couldn't get out of bed to even brush my teeth. And I tell this story at the end of the book because that's why the book didn't come out. Well, that's part of the reason the book didn't come out until uh, January, 2022. For the rest of that year, I couldn't write because I, I was trying to get out of bed uh, and, and do any of the work that I was already contracted to do. Um, then 2000, uh, I was 17, 2018, it, it lifted as they told me it would, but I did a lot of breathing exercises a lot of meditation, I started to embrace these practices of my teacher like I had never embraced. Pain is a great motivator, as we all know. And when I was in that kind of pain, I sat down in front of my, what you call a puja, which is where your artifacts are that you just meditate in front of. And I would sit there for a long time till that trauma would die away and, and the breathing would replace it. So breathing became as I knew it was supposed to be, but I was never so motivated to practice. Breathing became the central activity in my life. 2019, I started to get back into writing the book uh, because it was nearly finished before I left in 2017. But I had some new information and a couple of new chapters. Finally, in 2020, where I was really burning, because when I emerged from that trauma, I emerged with a deeper relationship to breathing, um, where breathing was my purpose on earth not getting the results I want, doesn't matter what else is happening. If I'm tuning into my breath, I'm in this moment. And if I'm really tuning into my breath, I'm not thinking about anything. And this is the almost religion, I believe, of the 21st century. I don't care what religion or spiritual path you follow. One of the most blessed states is to be in this moment, not in the past or the future, regretting the past or fearing the future, and not thinking. any way that you've learned to not think in this day and age is probably the closest thing to linking up with the direct spiritual source of your choosing. So finally, when the pandemic came, the first two weeks, I just finished the book, which meant just reading it over and over again and going through misprints, which there still were anyway, but, you know, <clears throat> and that's the, and the final thing was how I, I talked about uh, doing what I do at the piano, you know, many people could be just as traumatized because they have a concert. What they call performance anxiety is trauma. And it's triggered by the idea that you have to perform for someone. For me, that was like, oh, thank goodness I have to, that was all my life. Oh, thank goodness I have to perform now. I don't have to live because I feared living life, but I didn't fear playing the piano, you know? So finally, after all that, I felt my life had moved more into alignment with the way I regard music. You can't choose it. It's not a philosophy. It's a trigger. It's a neural pathway. No matter how much you think you should be liberated when you play the piano, if you have a neural pathway that fears playing the piano, that's where you're going to go. <clears throat> so it's going to betray your own beliefs, but those beliefs have to be followed by some kind of a practice. If you don't have a practice, converting a fear into a liberation. And there are ways to practice it. And I've been doing it for musicians for years, 
And now I believe it relates to anybody. And you keep practicing it and you make that shift. And of course, the mind flips right back into its old patterns. However, the more regular you are about making the shift, cutting a new path, the more you may tap into it at important times. Like when you would normally have fear, you might go, but you know, if I just watch my breathing for a moment, I could connect with this moment. So, so the ultimate end of the book with that trauma, I think it was all very, uh, div- whatever you call that, divinely inspired, that it happened that way instead of just finishing it up in 2017 and putting it out. That is quite a story. Wow. Um, I don't even know where to go after all that. <laughs> we started with trauma, which is not usually where we go for the book, but wherever right. you like to go. No, no worries. No worries. Um, this is improvisation, so I have no problem with this. Totally improvisation, yes. <coughs> um. You know, let's start with the let's start with the little T traumas. And, you know, I, I think so many of us have to deal with those growing up that we don't really realize that that's what they are. Um, you know, I had a similar some similarities to your your upbringing. Um, <clears throat> I didn't get to watch a lot of TV, but I did have older brothers and sister older brother and sister that weren't really in my life. Um, I'm left-handed, so I, I totally get that. You, know <laughs> you can't read my that. writing. <laughs> right. Yeah. But, um, you know, there's, there's just so much of those, those little things that our parents did back in the day that, you know, if we looked at it today, people would flip, um, you know, and, it's just kind of that's how it was they didn't know any better you know right. back in back when you were younger they didn't have a name for ADHD like you said they didn't have a name for Tourette syndrome and so you know you go to school or you go wherever and your tics are acting up and and people just they don't yeah you're right they don't know what to do with you even I think even in today's um today's situations you know, with some things, even though we know more about things like Tourette's, uh, it's still a matter of, I don't know how to handle this. How do I, how do I, how do I deal with you? Um, but those little T traumas stick with us throughout our life and they pop up in ways that you would never even begin to imagine. So, um, you know, just I think a lot of the fact that you are aware of it and you can you can actualize it and you can relate to it when when these do pop up for you. Um, that's a huge step in healing from traumas because so many of us can't do that. Well, I do think that there are therapies today that acknowledge and understand the brain much more than oh yes traditional therapy where you just told your story and how does that feel and how's that you know and right. one of them that I, I relied on is after that accident was emdr which mm-hmm. i'm sure you're well aware of may have been discussed here and uh what was so good about that it was getting into stories that you didn't think you affected you at all you know say try to find when you uh you know 
wet your pants in third grade. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, or when I accidentally got my mother's hands caught in an electric window in a, in a car and how, you know, I can still remember the feeling because I didn't know how to bring it down and her crying, you know, so they would guide you to this stuff that's hiding and shaping your life or limiting your life. And then they would do the, do the bilateral balancing. And I don't think it's the last uh, uh, therapy that they're going to come up with. I think it's the beginning of understanding that the mind has different lights. It has different things that light up, responding to certain uh, tri tri triggers or uh, you know stimulus. And that there now, the more you understand that, the more you can engineer uh, new pathways. And um, there's a lot of promising stuff out there. Uh, I, I kind of wish it because I always knew what my problem was. I just had no idea. And it was in life. But the, see, the counterpoint in my life was that I had no problems at playing music in front of any amount of people. It would just juice me. And if you talk to most, most amateur musicians, and I would tell you that more than 50% of professional musicians will tell you of the feeling of limitation and responsibility when they think about performing. In fact, that's what gave rise to music therapy. I don't mean as a, as a modality. I mean, that's how many people became music therapists. Very rarely in the beginning did anyone choose to be a music therapist. They chose to be a performer and found that it brought out their worst fears every time they did it. And then they tried music therapy and just shifting the meaning in their mind. I'm not performing. I'm helping this person. And then they didn't have the anxiety. And then I see effortless mastery, which is what I teach. And I'm, I've got at Berkeley College of Music, the Effortless Mastery Institute is sort of a healing musician heal thyself. In other words, I would tell them, well, you didn't have to quit performing. <clears throat> to get that feeling you got the music therapy. If you're playing on the stage of Carnegie Hall, just do music therapy. And they go like, what? You know, like, how, how? you know, it, it just didn't compute. In other words, you get on stage, you turn yourself on, knowing that your light is going to raise the, the light in the room. And because you're there to help is very different than, I wonder if they'll like my playing. But that's the same thing as I wonder if they'll like me. So I had a reverse thing. A lot of people had a much healthier or at least healthier life. They may have been self-judgmental in their life, but way more when they played music. For me, the freedom from all those mental constraints was simply to play the piano and not even alone, to make sure someone was listening to me. It was built into me. That was a good thing about watching television. Every pianist I saw by the time I was seven years old was an entertainer. If you think about who was, and I'm, we are not the same generation. So your parents said you didn't watch a lot of television. But coming out of World War II, 19, early 50s, they thought that was a solution. Wow, I don't have to have a babysitter. If he sits in front of the TV and he doesn't make a sound for two hours. You know, they thought that was a, like canned peaches. They thought that was a solution. They didn't know that uh, it was going to actually cripple people in terms of being present. The difference between being numb and being present. And people that have trauma are always seeking a solution where they're numb until they realize that the, they've also become numb to the possibilities of their life.
So now the challenge is to get out of being numb and become present, which numb is the poor substitute for. Yeah, you're present when you're watching a TV show. You're watching a, a cop show and it's a half hour in and, you know, they're experiencing this the worst part of the story. And 15 minutes before it ends, they start to see a thread of how they're going to catch the criminal. And it's all done in an hour. And a person that sees life wrap, uh, you know, roll out a problem and solve it within an hour over and over again has no patience for the pace of actual life. That is so true. That is so true. We live in a world of instant gratification, and that's just not how life works nowadays. Or ever. And that was the early 50s. Now we're talking about solving it within seconds. Right. Right. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> yeah, and, and social media. Yeah. You know, I like how you how you kind of reframed the performance, you know, instead of performing, you're, you know, you're, you're helping people. Um, you know, it's just a, a way of reframing your mind, reframing your thinking, changing your neural pathways right. um, so that it's it's not a, okay, I'm, I'm going to go perform and entertain these people. It's I'm going to go play my music and, you know, provide therapy and, you know, what, healing for these people um, because music for sure is such a huge um, I think is a healing modality. I, you know, I, I know for me, I, I tend to get lost in various genres depending on, on what my moods are. I need to hear different kinds of music. Um, so it's, you know, for me, it's very much a mental therapy. Absolutely. You know, the, the oddity is that music has a far more correct effect, what it was meant to be, on the people listening than it does on the people who play because there are many people that pervert their uh, they uh, invert and pervert their own humanity to try to get a good performance out. And those are not the performers we generally listen to. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I'll show two versions in my class. And I've been very lucky to be a teacher is to have even hammered these lessons home to me even deeper as I help others lift the veil from their own self-judgment and suddenly connect with the instrument. See, connecting with the instrument is not validated by whether or not you play well. Connecting with the instrument is validated by whether or not you forgive yourself instantaneously for anything that comes out, whether you can celebrate yourself, no matter how the music sounds. We should not hold ourselves hostage to the, uh, the value system of, I played good, I played bad, uh, because that will rob us of the actual experience of music. It's, music is not, I'm talking about the player. Music is not a, a valid experience because you played well and everybody liked it. Music is a valid experience because you accepted yourself while you were playing it. And this is a tremendous healing for the musician and very much of a revelation, believe me, because we were raised in a Western society that totally gouged your, uh, gouged, gauged, <laughs> gouged is probably the better word. Your validity. <laughs> but here's the rest of the set. It gouged your validity, <laughs> but I meant it gauged your validity by uh, the, how good you played. Yeah. So therefore, here's the opposite experience. I played so well as a child, you know, like a prodigy that nobody even questioned if there was anything wrong with me because it, it couldn't matter because look how he plays the piano. Yep, even yep. though he goes home from school sometimes kicking and screaming 
because he can't control the sound he's making and it's making his throat raw, but then he's going to play piano. It's all okay. So it's a value system. And that's why I feel like the book is called Becoming the Instrument, Lessons on Self-Mastery from Music to Life. That's because in my life only, I'm, I'm only telling about how I learned it. I know so many healthy and wise things from what I was gifted with. I won't tell it, say that I even did the work. I was gifted with a relationship to music that others really needed to find. But I needed to find that in my life. And whereas this, I was started with this gift in music, it only came to me, uh, the integration, I would say, is less than 10 years old. And this is, that's, that's spending decades, you know, six decades in, in pain while you have a pain-free experience of playing music and finally teaching so much and the good therapy, I started to say, okay, I need to be in this moment and accept whatever's going on. That's not a big revelation. It's just that most people can't do it. And my exercises for doing it at the instrument turn out to be uh, effective for doing it away from the instrument. So when people go I with teaching, which I have them keep journals, Half of their experiences were not in the music. They were in their life. This whole thing changed for me. And now I'm at the precipice of thinking that what I call effortless mastery or becoming the instrument could be a, 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 a way out for people that don't even play the music. Wow, that's really that that's really interesting. Um, and you know, Alexander Technique started as purely a music technique. Hmm. It was how a violinist was solving his own problems with the way he was holding the violin. And now Alexander Technique is a, a major instrument of achieving, uh, you know, mental or spiritual harmony, physical harmony. Huh. Interesting. Well, Kenny, this has been really fascinating. Thank you so much for coming on and talking with us today. Um, you know, this is a, a little bit different of ways of thinking than we normally discuss on the show. So it, this has been really, really interesting. Thank you. Well, this is a very different interview for me. So I thank you because from the point of view of your show, I've never discussed the book on this level about the book is very multifaceted and right. you pulled out a facet that didn't uh, hasn't emerged yet in an interview. So I thank you. Absolutely. Listeners, you know the drill. I will have all of Kenny's contact information, the link to his book, everything done in the show notes. Just head over to releasingtraumapodcast.com, pull up his episode, and it will all be there for you. As always, thank you so much for listening. If you're listening from one of your favorite apps, whatever it is, make sure you give us a like, give us a follow, and we will talk to you in the next show. Thanks for tuning in. Be sure you hit subscribe on your favorite podcast platform so you don't miss a show. Be sure to check us out on our new socials on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram.
With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.